The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Dr. Dennis Johnson. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Our meditation today comes from Hebrews 1, verse 6. Uh, For backdrop, let us first hear Psalm 97, verses 1 through 7, and then we'll turn over to Hebrews. Psalm 97, beginning at verse 1. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the peoples see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him all you gods. And then from Hebrews, we'll begin to read again at the beginning of the epistle and read through verse 6. Long ago, in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Join me in prayer, please. Father, as we ponder a few minutes the glory of the Son, before whom even the mightiest and most majestic angels fall down in glad adoration, move our hearts to do the same. Give us a a better, clearer, brighter glimpse of the glory of your beloved Son as he sits and reigns and rules and prays for us at your right hand. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've heard the the prologue, the introduction to Hebrews, uh, announcing this bold claim that the Son, the one whom he will, in chapter 2, identify by name as Jesus, the one who shares our flesh and blood, the one who's experienced our weakness and trials. This son is the eternal, divine, personal agent of creation and providence, the radiance of the Father's glory. And this son, he says at the beginning, implying he's become lower than the angels because now this son has become greater than the angels, exalted with glory and honor. Divine, eternal son become incarnate messianic son for us. And we're in the midst of these seven quotations from the Old Testament to demonstrate that thesis. Five about the son, 
two about the angels. The first two were about the Son, as we've heard in previous meditations uh, from Psalm 2 and from 2 Samuel 7. But now we come to the first of the quotes that mention the angels. Let all God's angels worship him. A few words. We spend another 10, 15 minutes thinking about, oh my, yes. It's intriguing. There are actually three questions that are raised here. The first one is, where does God say this in the Old Testament? Let all God's angels worship him. And what does he mean by it? That's all kind of packaged in. But then the other two questions pertain to this little introduction. And again, when he leads his firstborn into the world, he says. So that's our three points. One on the text and two on the intro to the text. Where does the text come from? Let all God's angels worship him. Two possibilities. One is that it's from Deuteronomy 32 toward the end from some lines that do not appear in the Masoretic text, the Hebrew text of the Old Testament, but do appear in the Greek translation, and we thought only in the Greek translation until the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. Those, that particular line, let all God's angels worship him, almost exactly what Hebrews gives us here, has its counterpoint counterpart in the Deuteronomy scroll found at Qumran. So it, it could well be from Deuteronomy 32 from a Hebrew text or the author using the Septuagint reflects the Hebrew text behind the Qumran uh, Hebrew uh, manuscript. But the other possibility, the one I think is a little bit more likely, that's why I read to you Psalm 97, is that it is from Psalm 97, uh, and very close again to the Greek translation here. Uh, in Psalm 97, as you heard, the Lord is introduced uh, as reigning, as coming with lightning and fire. The next quote uh, that we'll come to in a couple of weeks uh, also focuses on the angels as fiery lightning that come to accompany the Lord when he comes uh, and manifests glory on earth. Uh, Psalm 97 extols the Lord as most high over all the earth. Now, Deuteronomy 32 makes the same point that the Lord is uniquely worthy to be called God and worshiped as God. Deuteronomy 32, verse 39, I, even I am he and there is no God beside me. With it, whatever the source is, the point is that angels are commanded to offer to the Son a kind of adoration that no creature, no mere creature deserves. That's the point. The Son has to be God if God the Father commands his angels to worship the Son. That's such a predominant theme throughout the Bible, isn't it? Moses, on the plains of Moab, preparing Israel to go into the land of promise, made the Israels very, very aware. It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve. By his name you shall swear, you shall not go after other gods. Jesus quoted Moses in rebuffing Satan when he himself, Jesus, was tempted in the wilderness. Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The book of Revelation is full of amazing visions, and twice angels come to John and reveal amazing things, and twice John is inclined to fall down and worship them, and they will have none of it. 
You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. From one angel in chapter 19, from another in chapter 21. Worship the Lord alone. And God says, let all God's angels worship the Son. The myth of God incarnate hubbub is long forgotten. I know, that was a book that came out in 1977 before some of you were born, probably. But it was a big deal. Uh, One of the most helpful, I think, responses to that attempt to undermine the biblical doctrine that God the Son, the eternal Son, became flesh incarnate of the Virgin Mary was an essay by the late New Testament scholar R.T. France, uh, which he entitled, The Worship of Jesus, a Neglected Factor in Christological Debates. France raised the question, how could it be that people who lived near Jesus, walked with Jesus, who were steeped in historic Israelite monotheism, could very, very soon begin to pray to Jesus, Acts 1, begin to worship Jesus? How could that be? Unless, in fact, they saw in Jesus that here the living God had become our human brother. How else to explain Revelation chapter 5, where we read as the Lamb is revealed in one of John's visions. Remember, this is the book in which angels say, never worship an angel, only God. And then we read the Lamb revealed, and John says, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. They worshipped the Lamb. How to explain what our preacher to the Hebrews says here. When God brings his firstborn into the world, he says to all of his angels, you worship him. Clearly the Son is eternal God, the radiance of the Father's glory, the exact imprint of his being. What's interesting is that the introductory words place this in a very specific context. When, again, he places, he sends his firstborn into the world. Here we have the language of firstborn, and that's important. That's an Old Testament echo. That's why it was important for us to sing a bit of Psalm 89 today, in which the Lord sums up his kingship covenant with David by by saying that David would call upon him as father, and that God would acknowledge David as the firstborn among the kings of the earth. Now, despite what the folks from the Watchtower Society will say when they knock on your door, firstborn does not have to do with chronological priority in creation or even in generation, really. David was not born first in his own family, obviously, not born first among Israel's kings, there was Saul before him, not born first among all the ancient Near Eastern kings, but he was firstborn. He was the preeminent one. And that's the way the psalmist is using this term as an image, as a metaphor of preeminence and inheritance and in authority. The firstborn received twice as much inheritance and was the ruler among 
his brothers. That's in part why the author of Chronicles in 1 Chronicles 5 explains how things finally sifted out. Reuben was born first to Jacob, but all of his firstborn rights went to others. Double inheritance to Joseph through Manasseh and Ephraim. Ephraim. I got it in there, that ballpark, right? And rule to Judah through David. That's what's getting, being gotten at here. The firstborn is the preeminent king and the preeminent heir. And of course, we've heard that Jesus is the heir of all things in the introductory verses. But when did God lead his firstborn into the world? It's possible to read the again there in verse 6 as referring to the bringing. And when he again brings his firstborn into the world would be then a reference to the second coming when Christ returns. Hebrews knows that that's hap- going to happen. In fact, the writer to the Hebrews points out in chapter 9 that Jesus came a first time to deal with sin, but he will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are waiting for him. So he clearly affirms the future second coming of Jesus that we hear throughout the New Testament. Is that when all the angels of God will be commanded to worship him? Mm, Likely not. Likely the ESV is right here to take that little word again simply as a link word to the various quotations, as it was in the middle of verse 5, right? Uh, The Lord has said only to the Son, not, not to any of the angels, you are my Son. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Just a second one. And that's probably what's going on here. So then, when did God bring his firstborn into the world so that all the angels worship him? I have to confess that for years and years, I've read and actually even preached this text going right to Bethlehem. Right? I mean, isn't that perfect? Right to Bethlehem. There you have angels appearing to shepherds in the darkened night sky and announcing the coming of Christ the Lord, and praising God, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among the people with whom God is showing his favor. It fits. Actually, in chapter 10, the preacher to the Hebrews will quote Psalm 40 and say, at that point, when Christ comes into the world, he says, I'm ready to do your will with the body prepared for me, better than the, than the sacrifices and the offerings of the Old Testament. So I connected for years. I read Hebrews 1 in the light of Hebrews 10, read this text in the light of Psalm 40. And I might have been right, but on further study, uh, some others have pointed me to something rather Striking. The term in chapter 10 concerning the incarnation, the son comes in to take up the body prepared for him to offer that body, clearly about the first coming of Christ. The term for world is cosmos, world. That's not the term here. The term here is oikumene, often equivalent. In fact, virtually everywhere in the New Testament, those two words are pretty much equivalent. Used often in Luke Acts, several times in the book of Revelation, once in Matthew, once by Paul, and it always refers to the inhabited world on earth, sometimes maybe specifically the Roman Empire, but it's about this world. The thing is, when Hebrews uses the term, he just uses it twice, 
And the second one is actually just a few paragraphs later in chapter 2, verse 5, where he says, It was not to angels that God subjected the oikumene, the world, to come, of which we are speaking. And then he quotes Psalm 8, and he points out that Psalm 8, which speaks of humanity's ultimate destiny to rule, is fulfilled already in Jesus, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, and then exalted, crowned with glory and honor. In other words, he's saying the world to come is all about the rule of Christ after his suffering. And we've already been talking about that, he says. If you read it that way, that this is one more testimony to the exaltation of Jesus after his suffering, it fits the context just beautifully. It illustrates the point of verse 4. He has become more excellent than the angels, having inherited the better name, the better name of Son, and now the exaltation that the sons must worship him. But did did the angels worship the Son through his resurrection and his ascension? Oh, my, yes. Paul, 1 Timothy chapter 3, quotes what is probably an early Christian confession. In fact, he even introduces it with the Greek word related to confession, homologao. He, he uses a, an adverb form there. And, and he's, he, this confession is composed of three couplets, and in each set of two lines, there is one reference to the display of Jesus' glory on earth and then in heaven, and then in heaven, and then on earth, and then on earth, and then in heaven. It goes like this. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, on earth, vindicated by the Spirit, his resurrection ascension, seen by angels in heaven, proclaimed among the nations on earth, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Seen by angels, the risen Ascended, son, seen by angels. I quoted a verse from Revelation 5 a few minutes ago. Earlier, when the son has been revealed as the lamb, John looked and heard around the throne the voice of many angels, myriads of myriads. That's tens of thousands of tens of thousands and thousands of thousands praising the lamb who is Judah's lion the king who stooped to conquer by being slain. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Angels worshiping the risen son today. So our preacher is projecting that scene before our eyes. Jesus' heavenly homecoming as the victorious king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, And when the announcement goes out, the angels gladly bow the knee and worship him and praise him. You see it? You see Jesus that way? So terrifyingly majestic, so radiant in divine splendor, so daunting in glory that seraphim covered their faces, not daring to look straight on at the firstborn son, that angels and elders fall down on their face who has come to win the victory and has won the victory for us. We need to be stunned by the sun's splendor 
if we're ever going to begin to be amazed at his grace, that this glorious one is not ashamed to call us his brothers and his sisters, that this glorious one became lower than the angels for us, taking our humanity, that he might rescue us. If angels, who, as Peter says, 1 Peter 1, long to take, get a glimpse into the salvation prepared for us, if they worship, how much more should we worship? He stooped so low to bring us so high. And now he is, as Paul says in Ephesians, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age and the one to come. And the angels worship him, and we can too. In fact, we can, as his brothers and sisters, redeemed by his humble condescension, his faithful obedience, his sacrificial suffering, and rescued from death by his mighty resurrection. Oh, come, let us adore him. Let's pray. Father, we join our feeble lays, as the hymn writer says, uh, with the splendid songs of praise sung to your eternal, incarnate, humiliated, but now exalted Son at your right hand. We for whom he came, we whom he loved, and bled and died for, we for whom he kept your law from start to finish, that we might be clothed with his righteousness, we join our songs of praise with the praises and the adoration of seraphim and cherubim, cherubim and all of the various angelic, angelic messengers that you send to do your will. We praise your Son as you command them and us to do. Let us live in that praise, Father, in the tasks of this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2015, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.